Good morning, everybody. Oh, I almost, group this size, I almost don't need the microphone. <laughs> Thank you all for being here. Um, welcome to Tuesday Bible Study, the first day of the spring semester. I don't, the spring, <laughs> I'm choosing not to believe that the fall semester scared everyone away. <laughs> I'm choosing to believe that COVID scared everyone away, and I trust that we have um, a good number of people who will listen on our website after the fact. In fact, a number of people have told me that they have. As you saw, if you saw our updated email, um, for the next couple weeks, because of COVID, we will not have small groups. This week, um, please don't run off after the lecture. The lecture will still end at, end at 10.30, <laughs> um, but we will have some time because after, at 11.30, we have our own Sloan Graf, who is going to be speaking at our Food for Thought luncheon. So if you're signed up for Food for Thought, don't run off, hang, or even if you're not signed up for Food for Thought, come with us to the back tables. Caroline Eager has brought some cinnamon pound cake. <laughs> And we have coffee, yes. So if you made a New Year's resolution to eat better, it's time to put it away. We all know you weren't gonna keep that anyway. Maybe you have more self-control than me. I love New Year's resolutions. I make like 10 every year and I never keep them. Um, one year my New Year's resolution was to stop leaving empty Tupperware containers in my car. And I did keep that one. I no longer have a pile of trash in my car. Oh, yes. Um, also, Starbucks was not going to provide us coffee due to COVID, which I don't know what that means, but whatever. So we have some lovely St. Francis Episcopal Church Parish Hall coffee for you. <laughs> so you will have coffee and pound cake. We will gather at the back tables, and we can just spend some time in fellowship, um, spending time together, we can do sort of an informal question and answer if there's any burning questions that you've been dying to ask, but because your priest keeps talking right up until 10.30, you are never able to. Um, now is your chance. <laughs> so join us at the back tables so that they can set up the front tables after Tuesday Bible study, and we will um, just spend some time together. We will then start small groups up as soon as we are able. Some of our leaders are traveling, some are sick, and so as soon as we have kind of a critical mass of small group leaders, we will get started on that. I would like to give a warm welcome to those who are joining us for the spring semester who were not able to join us um, in the fall. Thank you for being here. We are going to be picking up right in the middle of the Book of Romans. But it's okay because I repeat myself a lot. So you will have all of the same information um, that the rest of us have. Also, if you're feeling really ambitious, you can listen to the fall lectures online. Most of them. Some of them aren't there, but most of them are. Whew, okay. One more housekeeping note and then we'll dive in, which is, does everyone have a spring syllabus? If you need a spring syllabus, I have some extra copies. Um, I don't have a ton of extra copies, but I can make more. 
and we will go over this again. Um, it came to you by email. Uh-oh. Okay, it looks like I have six. <laughs> can you pass those um, to some people in the back? We can print more as needed. I can actually text Liz and ask her to print more. Please hold. Could you please print 20 spring TBS syllabuses? Syllabuses? Syllabi? Syllabi. We want to be grammatically correct in our text messaging. Okay, now the reason I ask about the spring syllabus is because we are going to make a few gentle amendments to the syllabus. So here's the problem with making a syllabus in the fall for spring is that we haven't actually read the book yet. So our syllabus keeps breaking in weird places, and that's fine. We're mostly just going to roll with it. But today, we are not going to go all the way up through chapter 8, verse 30. We're only going to go chapter 8, verses 14 to 28, which still covered three pages of notes, so never fear. Next week, we're going to do chapter 8, verses 29 to chapter 9, verse 5. That will also break us in a weird place, but sometimes you don't always get the Paul you want. You get the Paul you get. All right. A quick review of last semester. This is a whole Omicron wave Christmas vacation ago, so I'm sure we've all forgotten. The first is to remember when we're looking at the letter to the Romans, the context that Paul is writing in. Paul is late in his career at this point. He is already a very well-known apostle, a very well-known preacher, and a well-known church planter. He is known all over the Christian world. He has had a lot of success planting churches in Galatia, Philippi, etc. He is now writing to a Christian community in Rome, which he did not found. It's not a church he planted. Somebody else planted it. We don't know who. We don't know how long Christians have been in Rome at this point. It's an established community. It's one that Paul says he's wanted to visit for many years, but has not been able to. So this is an established community. And Paul's letter to Rome, he is planning to come visit. And this is sort of his apology for himself. And I mean apology in the Christian apologia sense, not like, I'm so sorry, I'm St. Paul. He wouldn't say saint. Um, he is writing a defense, again, in the sort of legal sense, not he's been attacked, of his ministry and vision of the gospel. And it seems one of the things that's going on, as scholarship suggests to us, is that the church in Rome in the early days was very, very close to the synagogue. In fact, it was in the synagogue. In the earliest days of the church, all the Christians are Jews. There is no distinction between Jew and Christian in the early days of the church. Paul, of course, is the apostle to the Gentiles. This was radical. When Paul said, I'm going to go to a bunch of Greeks and teach them about Jesus, 
the existing church said, that's crazy, he's the Messiah of Israel. Why would you bother teaching Greeks about the Messiah of Israel? And as Paul shows us in Romans, it's because Jesus Christ is also the Messiah of the entire cosmos, of the whole world, of the nations, Israel and the Gentile nations, and of everything that is created. But it seems that Paul is defending himself against the charge that he has strayed from Christianity's Jewish roots. That he, and he actually does a lot of this, like in his letter to the Galatians, he has said, he has told the church over and over again, you don't need to abide by Jewish ritual law. And so this seems to have been controversial. Do you or don't you need to be circumcised? If you're an adult Greek man, do you need to be circumcised in order to worship Jesus Christ, the Messiah of Israel? So this is what Paul is laying out. He does this first by breaking down the idea that having, that being in Israel, being circumcised, being a member of the circumcision party, possessing the law, inherently, just by being born into that, gets you anything. The Jews are still God's chosen people. God has an eternal covenant with them. Paul is very clear on that. It is through Israel that God will bless the nations. But there seems to have been this sort of understanding that if you're in Israel, you are free from judgment. The nations will be judged, but you're home clear. Paul says that's not true, and he uses Scripture to show that, one, all humans will be judged on the basis of their works, which is to say how they live their lives. Are they living righteously? And then, two, that no one is. None. The entire world, all of human population, Jew and Greek, are under a curse of sin. So none are righteous. If you are joining us in the spring semester, you got to avoid five chapters of Paul telling everyone how miserable that we are under the curse of sin, which is good. Go back and read it. It's important. But you are now in like happy fun, Paul, and you missed like no one ever preaches on the first five books of Romans ever. It's like it's just not good Sunday morning material, but it should be. Um, We are now moving into the part that people preach on which is great because it builds on that other part. So this key, this curse of sin that we're all under, this is central to Paul's argument in Romans. If you take nothing else from Tuesday Bible study, take this. For Paul and all of the New Testament, sin is not so much a bad choice we make, but a power to which we are enslaved. Sin is not a bad choice that we make, but a power to which we are enslaved. All of us are under what he calls the curse of Adam, which he doesn't explain the mechanism, but it somehow seems that when humankind rejected God's goodness and light and life, we fell under this curse, this decay, this corruption, the fact that we 
even when we want to do good, we are in the grip of a power beyond our control. Now, our behavior still matters. We still choose willingly. We do make choices. We choose willingly over and over again to pick up arms for the forces that hurt and destroy the creatures of God and not for the life and light that God wants to give his people. So the example I've used over and over again is is a 19-year-old German soldier who is drafted into Hitler's army and ordered to execute a Jewish family, is he acting under his own will? Well, yeah, he pulls the trigger. He had the choice to say no. But it's more complicated than that. He's 19 years old. This is the German war machine. He's going to die if he doesn't. So he is under a power that is beyond his control. That is the situation we are all in. So what can we do? This is a power that is stronger than us. That is Paul's point. In fact, he's going to show us it's stronger than the whole creation. We need something from outside of us to save us. We can't. This is why all our New Year's resolutions fail. (laughs) Because even with our best intentions... We can't remake ourselves. We need someone else. We need a savior. And so thanks be to God, Paul says, Jesus Christ comes from outside of us. From the power of God himself. But where does he meet us? In the flesh. Because all of our sins happen in the flesh. For Paul, remember, he uses all of this martial military imagery, and I think it's helpful. Remember, he calls our limbs weapons, instruments that we use. Sin happens in the body. For Paul, just thinking a negative thought about someone, see, Paul didn't have this body-mind distinction that we have, thanks to Cart. Um, Paul didn't have that problem. Negative, mean, hateful thoughts are sin because they turn into negative, mean, hateful actions. So Jesus doesn't just meet us in the mind or in the spirit, but in the flesh. Because only someone who is fully God is more powerful than the power that enslaves us. Only someone who comes from outside creation can break the bonds of sin and death. And it has to be done in the flesh. Jesus Christ is the only one who can save because he's the only one who has the full power of the Almighty God and the full humanity of those of us who are under the curse of sin. And because we have been buried with Christ in baptism and raised to new life, the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ are what break the powers of sin and death, shattered. 
And because we are buried with Christ and raised with him, sin no longer has a claim on us. And we can begin to live differently. Righteousness is possible once the reign of sin and death is broken. Now, Paul is a very good pastoral theologian because he doesn't look at the church and say, Christ has broken the reign of sin, so why the heck are you people still sinning? He also knows that the reign of sin and death is strong. These powers that we contend against are strong. We have a permanent wound by virtue of our rebellion against God. It does something to you. And we can't escape that, so we will die. But not forever. The question isn't, has God evacuated us from this conflict of sin and death? But will we always be subject to it? So this is our hope. How was that for a review of 14 weeks of the letters to Romans? Whew! Where we forgot to pray. Before we pick up, we're going to pray. And by we, I mean I. The Lord be with you. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life. That, maybe I forgot to pray on purpose, because that is really the perfect transition to what we're going to talk about. What Paul is going to break open for us today is that in Christ there is hope, not just for us in this life, but for the entire creation. Paul's hope, Paul's promise is much, much bigger than just have a nice, as nice a life as you can. Or just bigger than I was going to be a bad person, now I'm going to be a good person. It's a cosmic hope. It's for the whole creation because God is the God of the whole creation. So let's begin, finally, in Romans chapter 8, we're going to start expositing at verse 14, but I'm going to go back to verse 12 to begin reading. So Paul has just talked about this thing I was saying about how Christ meets us in the flesh. And because that is where Christ has met us, and it is where Christ has died. That's where the war has been fought, and it's where it's been won. So there is no longer condemnation. This is 8 verse 1. There is no longer condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The curse, the condemnation. So this is important to remember from last semester too. God is just, which means two things. There is no get-out-of-jail-free card. There are consequences for sin. That's what justice is. Justice is when you get what you deserve. 
My ninth grade biology teacher used to say that. If we all failed a test, I never failed a test, obviously. But if, um, but if we got bad test scores, he would like stand up in front of the class and be like, justice is when you get what you deserve. His point being, if you didn't study for this test, don't be mad at me about your grade. So justice is when you get what you deserve. And it's not, God's condemnation is not punishment, but restoration. It's only when you take out the sickness that healing can begin. You have to set the broken bone before it can heal correctly. And what Paul does in the first half of Romans 8 is show us that God's wrath, his condemnation, has fallen I love, oh, I love this. Not on us, but on the power that enslaves us. So that 19-year-old young man is going to have to, in you know, my Nazi metaphor, is going to have to pay for his, for his actions. But if you just punish the 19-year-old soldier and the rest of the German war machine keeps plowing on with no repercussions. Is that justice? If you execute the 19-year-old soldier who pulled the trigger and do not have a trial and some sort of coming, coming to terms with the entire operation that put him into it, that's not justice. So that's what God does. He, his condemnation is falling on the power that enslaves us because he loves us and never wanted us to die in the first place. It's good stuff, people. This is, this is a great religion. <laughs> this is a great Bible. So, that is what Paul has done in the first half of Romans 8. So, in Romans 8, 12... I am reading from the Revised Standard Version. Your preferred version will differ, but you should still be able to follow along. Verse 12. So then, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, buried with Christ, raised, you will live. Now here we are in verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is the Spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Whew, okay. Back to verse 14. We'll take this verse by verse. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Already we have a lot going on here. For Paul, remember, the Spirit of God, Paul is always Trinitarian, even though the, like, doctrine of the trinity hasn't been written yet like blah blah i know i get it i get it but paul knows god so he knows that god 
He's read his scriptures. He's, he's talked to people who know Jesus, and he knows that God is always breathing Father, Son, Spirit at once. So when we are baptized in Christ and the Spirit comes upon us, this is what begins to let us live differently. See how close we are connected to Christ? We're baptized with him, so it's not like Jesus died a long time ago to free us from sin, and now we're kind of back on our own but that somehow a Spirit of God has come upon us. The Spirit of Christ dwells in us. And so those who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. So notice, again, we are not free in a libertarian, or libertine, I'll say, because it doesn't have political baggage. We are not free in a libertine sense. Libertine freedom is you can do whatever you want with no consequences. It's your choice. Do whatever you want. Remember my favorite metaphor that for an alcoholic, a free choice between vodka or bourbon is not a free choice. You're still enslaved to alcohol. The free choice is to not want to drink at all. Then you are truly free from what enslaves you. But if you say to an alcoholic, like, it's your choice, you're free, choose. <laughs> That's not freedom. So we are still led by the Spirit. We are not completely free on our own. But God's Spirit is leading us toward life, whereas the dominion of power and death was leading us toward death and corruption. Next. Ooh. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So the New Revised Standard Version, which we use in worship, translates this as children of God because they want to be gender-inclusive. Okay, first of all, when Paul says sons, he also includes women. Paul is aware that women are a thing. <laughs> like, he knows there are women in his church. In fact, it appears from Paul's letters, and we'll look at this at the end of Romans, that women are the leaders of his church. So when Paul says sons, he's not talking biological men. What is he doing? In the ancient world, and especially in ancient Judaism, the son of a father is responsible for living out the father's vocation and will. The son, the eldest son, has the full authority of his father. So if you send your son on business, that's the same as being there yourself. The son receives the inheritance because he is continuing the father's role, the father's lineage. Children, in Greek, has a much different, there's two different words, sons and children. Wait, I have a slide on this. Oh, okay. We're on 8, 14 to 17. Sons, huios, children, tekna. So in verse 14, it says sons, huios. Sons are the ones who inherit and who live out their father's will. Children, especially in the ancient Roman world, the Greek, Greco-Roman world, Paul is occupying. Children do not have authority. Do not send them to do your business dealings. <laughs> they are very bad at it. 
Um, but also, you know, just in Paul's world, you would never say, it wouldn't, you wouldn't say my children to refer to your adult children, mostly. Children are babies who need to be cared for. Sons live out their father's will, adults with authority. So when Paul says we become sons of God, this is a big deal. And it's all tied up in what for Paul were the only scriptures, the Old Testament, which is that Israel is God's firstborn son. Israel is given to the world to show the nations what it looks like to be in relationship with God. And now that promise has come even to the Gentiles. This is huge. You Gentile Christians can also be sons of God to go forth and do your father's will. So then, we're going to come back to children in a second. Put a pin in that, because you will have noticed that at least in my translation, later on in verse 16, it talks about children. So we'll get there. But first, verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of sonship. Pause. So here again, this just is the clearest place Paul has laid out this, these two worlds we've been talking about. The world where we are under, we are enslaved to sin, which drives us to fear. Or the spirit of sonship, where we can stand in the presence of God, in the grace in which we stand without fear. And look, this, oh, this is so interesting. Look at what Paul does. Verse 15b. We've received the spirit of sonship. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is the Spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Abba is not a Greek word. You all know this probably. It's an Aramaic word. Aramaic is the sort of um, I don't know, marketplace <laughs> language of specifically the, um, the Levant, the, the region in which Jesus lives. Romans do not speak Aramaic. And yet this sentence, Abba, Father, seems to be something that Paul's audience is familiar with. They don't know Aramaic. They don't speak Aramaic. But the same way you and I know what Alleluia means, even though we don't speak Hebrew, except for Heather Graff, we still know what Alleluia means because we hear it in worship. Abba, Father, appears to be a prayer, a hymn, a liturgical phrase that Paul's audience is aware of. In Scripture, in Matthew, Jesus says it. Abba, Father. So this is super ancient. Like, by the time Paul is writing in 60 AD to this church, this prayer, Abba, Father, is something they are familiar with. And Paul is saying, when you say that, you say it as a child of God. Now here, in verse 16, he does use the word children, tekna. So do you see how both of these are happening at once? This is so good. 
we are sons of God and daughters, but go with me, sons in the ancient sense of it, who are endued with authority and responsibility and the glory of our Father. And at the same time, we are children who need to be loved and nurtured and led. For Paul, there's not a distinction between the two. So if you ever feel like some days, if you look at your church or your community and say, like, we are living out the kingdom, we are living as sons of God, yes, thanks be to God. And if other days you feel like a like a child who is frightened, who can do nothing more than cry, Abba, Father, I need you to help me in this because I cannot, I cannot go on your behalf right now. <laughs> I am too weak. I am too frightened. They are both true. Paul does not see a conflict between these. Now that's awesome, right? This is the whole of the Christian experience right here that you can be both a son of God and a child who needs her father or his father. So in this way, you know, this is one of my refrains too. We are saved from something, the power of sin and death, and we cry out to our father, Abba, Father, save us from the power of sin and death. And we also are saved for something so that we can go forth as sons of God living into his glory. And both can be true at once. Okay, if you, I have some notes here I forgot to get to. If you would like to look up more Abba Father, I was wrong, it's in Mark. Jesus says it in Mark 14, 36. Paul uses this phrase again, we cry Abba Father, in Galatians 4, verse 6 through 7. So notice too that the Spirit itself, Paul says in verse 16, the Spirit himself, itself, whatever you want to say, bears witness with our spirit. There doesn't have to be a God's spirit does not come on us and overwhelm us and like break us down so that we're just sort of like little puppets doing God's will. But that it's possible for God's spirit and our spirit to be led together. And so the spirit, for Paul, the evidence that we, (laughs) this is, oh man. I'm going to say this without crying. For Paul, the evidence that we are in Christ is that God's Spirit moves our heart to cry, Abba, Father. The fact that we recognize God as our Father is the sign that we are in Christ. And so we are led by God's Spirit, but we are not coerced by God's Spirit. Sin coerces. Sin makes you do things out of fear. The Spirit leads us out of love. Verse 17. 
bearing witness that we are children of God. Great. 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. So once again, Paul is making it clear what our status is. Just because we're children, little children who need our father, that doesn't divorce us from the inheritance. We are expected to grow into this inheritance, the weight of glory that is promised to us, that is promised to God's people. And so this is all wrapped up. You see how everything's connected. It's all wrapped up in Christ. Christ, the only begotten Son of God. By being joined to Him, we are adopted sons and daughters of God. So it's through Christ's merits, not ours, that we receive this spirit of adoption and thus get the whole inheritance. The inheritance promised to Israel, promised to Christ, is ours through our participation in him. And so then at the very end, Paul is bringing it back to this question. If Christ has defeated the powers of sin and death, why are we suffering? And it appears here, there's clarity we can draw here. The timeline of the letter to the Romans and the first organized persecution of Christians is confusing. But it seems pretty clear from the textual evidence that Paul, and Paul himself is persecuted, is writing to a church undergoing persecution possibly from Jewish authorities, which Paul used to be when he was persecuting Christians, possibly from Roman authorities, possibly organized persecution, and possibly just Christians need not apply subtle economic persecution. And so Paul says, if you are suffering, don't take it as a sign that God has left you. What would you expect if you're joined to Christ, who suffered. The people of God are going to suffer. If you became a Christian hoping that your life would be carefree and pain-free, Mother Barbara is about to disappoint you. <laughs> but I think all of you know this. This is not radical. Everyone here has encountered some sort of suffering, and Paul says, don't think that that's a sign that you've been lost that God is not present with you. Because if you suffer as Christ suffers, that is a sign that you are in Christ. What else would you expect? Now, to be clear, pastoral side note, this theology has in the past been taken too far. For example, in certain churches that I will not name, um, not in Louisville. There was a problem where women who were in abusive relationships would go to their pastors and say, I need help. My husband is abusing me. And they would say, well, you are suffering as Christ suffered. To be clear, that is very bad theology. <laughs> that is the reign of sin, not the reign of grace. And yet, we all know that it's unavoidable, that the suffering is unavoidable 
And so it's a sign that the powers of sin and death are still strong, but it's not a sign that they've defeated God because we look for something different. Okay. So he's saying, be prepared to suffer, but don't let it kill your hope. Whew, verse 18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This is possibly my favorite part. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not of its own will, but the will of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the glorious liberty of the children of God. So here we see creation too is under the curse of sin. This means, and this is crazy, this blew my mind when I first learned it and thought about it and prayed about it. Things like tornadoes that kill people are not morally neutral. See, we have this sort of post-Enlightenment, post-Darwinian, like the world is just sort of a random machine, and sometimes people die and it's nobody's fault. But what if creation is under the power of sin? What if God never intended storms to hurt his people? And the only reason they do is because even the creation is fallen. So this, the early fathers talked about this a lot. This is my favorite early church debate. Did snakes have venom in the Garden of Eden? If it's pre-fall, you don't need venom because creation lives in harmony with itself. There's no one to bite. You're not under threat. They didn't come up with a satisfying answer to this. Augustine said yes. Other early fathers said no. Venom, fangs, are a consequence of the fall, which is why it's so amazing that in Isaiah, we are told that in the end of days, a little child will put their hand on the adder's den. This is why the lion and the lamb lie down together. Because they're not just dumb animals, they too are under the curse of sin. Because remember, sin isn't just a decision, it's a power. So lions and lambs kill one another, are in conflict with one another, because they're under a curse. Just the same way we kill each other, we're also under a curse. But God's desire for us is that the lion and the lamb lie down together that we can look at the glory of a storm and not be afraid of it because it has no power over us. This is why I think, okay, Barbara Tangent, Mother Barbara Tangent, I think this is what's going on when Jesus calms the storm, that even nature is under a curse and thus is a threat. We're all in conflict all the time. Time is a creature of God, and it kills us. Storms are a creature of God, and they kill us. Bacteria are creatures of God, and they kill us. Why? Death is not part of God's plan. And when Jesus calms the storm, it is him showing his power as the creator who called the earth out of the waves. 
And it's also showing a human being who's not in conflict with nature. Pray about that this week, because that'll freak you out if you think about it too much. (laughs) And this is what Paul is saying, is that all of creation is under this curse. All of creation is groaning, waiting to be saved. Paul's vision of salvation is not just humans die and go to heaven, and the earth is sort of left on its own to do whatever it's going to do because it's just a big machine, but that earth will be saved. Waves will be saved. That's big. You don't have to believe this. I do. But if you find it compelling, I encourage you to think about what the consequences would be for a a whole cosmos that is saved. Gosh, what would that look like? It would look like Revelation. Come to Father Clint's class on the book of Revelation. It would look like Isaiah. The lion and the lamb will lie down together and a little child will lead them and no one will make them afraid. But we have to also wrestle with something here because, because Paul says, and this can be tricky, this is a stumbling block a lot of times to people. Creation waits in eager longing, verse 19, for the revealing of the sons of God, for creation was subjected to futility. It's under a curse, not by its own will, but by the will of him who subjected it in hope. So this sounds like God put the curse on us, on creation. Maybe it sounds like God put this curse so that creation could see the glory of the redeemed human creature. The problem with that is that it sounds an awful like, lot like what Paul warned us about earlier, um, Why not do bad that good might prosper? Remember that warning earlier in Romans? Should we not do evil that grace may abound? And yet, man, we're going deep today, everybody. I'm sorry. I hope you had an extra cup of coffee, because if not, stick around afterwards and have some with cake. Um, There is still a sense in which Because God's will does not coerce us. It is God allowed us to reject him. And this, so in this sense, we are subjugated by God. He didn't stop us. So also, if you came to Bible study today, hoping there would be an answer to the question, why does God allow evil to exist? Once again, I'm going to disappoint you because we do not have the answer to that question. But if it is the turning of the human will away from God and God chooses, asterisk, to allow that to happen, that is what subjugates us. We can do a whole class on the problem of evil. We cannot do it in the next 10 minutes. But I think that is what's going on here. And yet notice, Paul is not trying to explain how exactly creation ended up in this position. 
But he is setting up for the promise in verse 21 that creation itself will be set free from its bondage and obtain the glorious liberty of the children of God. So through Christ, the hope goes all the way down. Verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning in travail together until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait for adoption of sons for the restoration, redemption of our bodies. So here again, Paul is clear, the curse is still in our bodies. Our bodies die. They hurt. They break down. They're under the curse of sin. And so we are longing not to be freed from our bodies, but to have them redeemed to have them restored, and creation is doing the same thing. And note, there's this sense here that we are groaning with pain. This is such a good metaphor. We are groaning with pain and also in hope. That's why Paul talks about labor pains and not just screaming in pain, like, you know, broken bone or something. In this time... We are in pain because something new is being brought forth. The same way a woman in labor, God doesn't vacate the pain. In pain, something, there's hope in that pain. My aunt always said, I haven't, I haven't had children yet, but my aunt always said that the only way she got through labor was by saying, at the end of this, I won't be pregnant anymore. So she was like delighted when she woke up in horrible pain because in that pain, that was the sign that something new was being brought forth. This relates to what Jesus says when he says, when you experience persecutions, this is a sign of something. It's a sign that evil still exists, for sure. God does not intend us to be persecuted. But it's also a sign that the creation is reacting to something big God is doing. So we are in this stage, this overlap of the ages, where Christ has come and has defeated the powers of sin and death. And we are going through the birth pangs of seeing that new life. So that is what we're hoping for. All of this imagery, like labor pains, children, sons, it's like so earthy and so good. So creation is groaning. We are groaning. And yet we have this hope because the power of God doesn't take away suffering, but it does transform it. The suffering is a sign that something bigger is going on. Have you read that? Overlap of the ages? Okay, good. And so... Yeah, I've said enough about that. Verse 24. For in this hope we are saved. That's a big statement. What does it sound like? It sounds like the promise to Abraham that Paul spent all that time talking about in chapter 4. Remember, Abraham's faith is that he believed God's promise. Promise and hope 
Okay. He believed, I'm going to come back to that. Focus, Barbara. He believed God's promise. So even when he was 100 years old and his wife was barren, he believed in the promise that he would have children. He hoped in it. Even when God said, kill your only son, he believed. He hoped in God's promise. So it is through this hope, like Abraham, this trusting that even though we are suffering, even though the church is being persecuted, even though, gosh, we're like in this pandemic that will never end, even though it feels like everything is falling apart, that God's promise is still true. It is in hope, in trusting the promise, that we are saved. And here's how you know the rest of verse 24. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? This is where Paul is just so simple and so good. If you're waiting for a bus and you're hoping that it's going to leave on time, if you see the bus pulling up, you don't have to hope anymore. Unless they're going to do that super annoying thing where they like get to the stop and then just stop for 15 minutes for some reason. I don't have to take public transit anymore, but that was super annoying when they did. Okay, I'm getting off track. The point is, if you see the bus approaching, you no longer have to hope for it. It's only when the bus is out of sight that you're hoping it shows up. So what we are hoping for, this restored creation, this new glorifying bodies that don't hurt and kill us, but that live in restoration with God, we can't see that hope. We hope for it even though we don't see it. It's a promise. And so we trust it. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, this is the third groaning, likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We are not left alone. For we do not know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes with us with sighs, or groans, same word, too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts of men knows that the mind, what is in the mind, what, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So we do not know what we should pray for because we can't see the goal. See how these all layer? It's not, just, it's not like we're so dumb we don't know that sickness is bad. We do know that. But what we don't know is when or what the full restoration of creation looks like. And so we pray let your will be done on earth. Because we don't know, we haven't seen what it is we're looking for. We haven't seen what it is we're hoping for. And so we pray, and the Spirit, which does know, prays through us. This is actually a pretty common anxiety that I think people have, is not knowing what to pray for. When I was doing my clinical pastoral education 
at Dell Children's Hospital in Austin, Texas, there was this whole debate, should you pray for people to get better? Should you pray for them to be healed even if they're terminal? Or does that give them false hope? Or does that contradict the will of God? Should you pray for them to be healed? So some of my classmates said, well, I don't pray for people to get better. I only pray that the doctors and nurses have wisdom and insight. I only pray that they get good care. I always prayed for the healing of the sick because Scripture tells us we should, and then followed it with Jesus' prayer, but not my will but yours be done. And so we don't have to be anxious that our prayers are wrong because it is the Spirit of God which prays through us. So whatever is on your heart, take it to your Father, even if it seems, I mean, if it's drawing you from the love of God, like if you're praying that your neighbor who keeps parking in your parking spot gets hit by a lightning bolt, like that's probably like look at yourself about that. But if there is genuinely a place of hurt or a feeling that you don't know what to do in this situation, take it to Abba, your father, as a child of God, and his spirit will pray through you. This is a beautiful promise, and it shows how we aren't left alone to deal with this. Because the searcher of hearts, Christ, his spirit is working through us. Did I read all the way through verse 28? I feel like I didn't. Nope. Okay, here we go. Last verse. We know that in everything God works for good with those who are called according to his purpose. So this is the capstone on what we've just been saying about suffering. Note. Not all things are good. Sin is real. Death is real. Sickness is real. It is not good. It is not what God wants. And yet, it cannot defeat all things working together for good. So God doesn't will that you get cancer and waste away, or someone you love does but it also can't destroy you because God is going to redeem us in the end. There is nothing that, through which Christ cannot pass in order to bring us to fulfillment in God. And so all things eschatologically, all things totally, Every labor pain is bringing us one step closer. Everything we undergo is a share in Christ's suffering and thus brings us one day closer, one step closer to that promise, that eternal promise of God, that we will live in harmony with him, that we will be restored that justice will be done not just in retribution, but in restoration. 
That was a lot. That was a long day. If you're new here, welcome. This is what it's like. <laughs> so in summary, we are heirs of God through Christ, who is the true son, we are adopted in, which means that we have a responsibility. Again, it's not a get-out-of-jail-free card. We have a responsibility to do our Father's will in the world. This is a high calling. And the cosmos, too, all of creation, is like us struggling toward the goal, waiting to be freed from the powers of sin and death eternally. We know that they can't defeat Christ, and yet we suffer, and yet we struggle. And so we have hope in a promise, in something we cannot see, and yet hope for. And that is good news. So we will pick up next week at 8.29, again, right in the middle of a thought, sorry. For now, if you would like to stay and have cake, or if you have any questions about Romans or the Bible, if you want to play Stump the Priest, um, now is your chance. <laughs> we will be gathering at the, at the back tables um, for a few minutes for coffee, refill your coffee, get a piece of cake, and then... Um, Hang out to hear Sloan at 11.30. Thank you.